Welcome to Greenwood Forest, a podcast for Christians who don't think power is a dirty word. We're here today to talk about organizing principles in Christianity and how they relate. I'm Reverend Lauren Eford, and I'm here with Reverend Stephen Sachs. Hey, everybody. And Reverend Wesley Spears Newsom. Hi. What is it about organizing work and the philosophy of organizing that you all think is especially helpful for churches? And where do you see organizing principles in the ministry of Jesus? I think um, back when I was a child growing up in the church, whenever my church led missions campaigns, one of the Bible verses that they used to launch all of these campaigns was Acts 1.8. And Acts 1.8 is Jesus talking to the disciples, and he tells them, it begins, but you have received power. And power is not a word that we often like to talk about in church. Power often has negative connotations. It's a dirty word. Like, it's, it's things that evil, worldly people use. But, but organizing, I think, is important because organizing is all about power. It's all about amassing power to use it to make the world a better place and to be the change that you're always praying for in church on Sunday morning. Mm. Yeah, I think about, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm uh, listening to an organizer talk about power and, and doing a power analysis and how, you know, in order to go from the world as it is to the world as it should be, which is something that organizers talk about a lot, um, you need power um, because power is just the capacity to act, um, to act on the world as it should be. Um, and, uh, I think about, uh, Martin Luther King's quote about, um, love, uh, power without love is cruel and love without power is sentimental and anemic or, uh, something along those lines. And, um, you know, typically the churches that, that don't like to talk about power or avoid the conversation are often churches who have the most power are granted the most privilege and power in our culture. And it's part of the reason why they don't like to talk about it, because they would have to acknowledge that they have conferred ill-gotten Ill Ill power from our society, and they might need to give some of it up. They might need to use it in a different way. Um, they might need to bring people who are, who are disempowered in our society alongside them, be in relationship with those people, learn from them um, how to make the world into the world as it should be. Um, so, you know, the principles of organizing around power, I think, are really important for churches to, um, to understand and to kind of uh, embrace as something that's not contrary to our scripture, but something that's all over our scripture. If we look carefully, um, lots of words for power in our scripture that pop up all over the place. You're making me think about the prayer vigil that we recently held in front of an ICE office for one of our church members and how, um, as we were preparing to go, someone said to me, well, what's your plan for who's going to be arrested? And I said, well, as a, as a white woman, I never really thought that anyone was ever going to dare arrest me. Mm. Um, and sort of the realization that I had of, um, my own power and my own privilege and how I, uh, show up in the world and how, um, I don't question that. I can't talk my way out of something or that people won't understand my genuine nature if I just have the opportunity to explain it to them. Mm. Um, and recognizing that 
that's not the world that a lot of people inhabit. Um, you all are making me, you know, want to talk a little bit more about, um, so recognizing power that we have and privilege that we have is one thing and organizing churches and a lot of, you know, church members, uh, would like for us to talk about what does it mean, um, how does Jesus demonstrate, right? So how does Jesus demonstrate for us, um, the importance of power and, and claiming power? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, is another practice of organizers is the relational meeting. And this is something else that I think really um, translates well into the local church context as a practice that um, has roots in our, in our scripture and our tradition, but also is, is, a, is a powerful practice for um, organizing. Um, and we can, uh, we can see the principle of uh, getting to know another person's deepest motivations and pressures on their life uh, and then um, acting with them uh, throughout scripture. I, I, um, the one um, example that's coming to my mind right now is uh, the story of Jesus and Jairus and the uh, woman who is bleeding um, and Jesus is on the way to heal Jairus's kid but is stopped by this woman uh, or this woman touches him and he stops and, and says who you know who was that and and then uh, instead of you know dismissing her he listens to her story her whole story mm-hmm. uh, and then she is healed and in the process Jairus's kid has died um, but then Jesus still proceeds to to, to go to Jairus's mm-hmm. house and heal and, and um, bring his kid back as well um, so there's kind of this idea built into that passage that um, if you if we um, there's enough Jesus to go around first of all uh, there's enough power to go around uh, if we listen to each other's stories um, and allow those people who who don't have space in our world um, a little more space to tell their story and for us to hear um, what's uh, what what the pressures are on their life and work together to um, to change the, change uh, the way our world is structured so that those people have what they need as well. I think like so much of the Gospels too is about both relational meetings between people, but it's also about organizing people. Because at the end of the day, like power is just organized, power is organized to people. Mm-hmm. And that's something Jesus does throughout the Gospels, from the beginning of the recruitment of the disciples to the training of the disciples through the parables and giving them power to cast out demons and heal the sick. Jesus is equipping and organizing people all the way up until the cross. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's something Jesus is doing constantly. Because um, we just think of like the 12 disciples most of the time, but there were huge crowds following Jesus, like masses of organized people following him around, um, who were also disciples. There's the passage where Jesus sends out 70 odd of them and to, gives them power to go do what he can do in the world. And that's nothing different mm-hmm. from what you're talking about when you're talking about organizing. Yeah. It's just getting people together listening to each other, deciding a common purpose, and figuring out what we can do collectively about it in the rest of the world. Yeah. 
on Jesus commands us, right? Just like Jesus commanded the first disciples to take on the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And to truly claim that um, and to use that uh, to bring about God's goodness in the world. Clearly we could talk about this forever, but let's, uh, let's transition to Tim Conder's uh, talk that he gave to our congregation um, a couple weeks ago about his book, Organizing Church, and how to apply organizing principles in the local church context. So how are you folks doing today? So an old organizing practice that we do in almost every meeting, uh, we won't be able to do it in full this morning because there's a lot of you here, but we always do what we call rounds, which is a chance that we understand people bring something. They bring stories, they bring passion, they bring interest, they bring pain to every gathering that we do. So usually if it's an organizing small group, 10, 12, we always have everybody speak and say, you know, something, sometimes it's just their name or something that they brought. But let me ask you that question. We'll hear from a few of you. It won't be everybody, obviously. But what, what, in a word, we often do it in a single word, what did you bring to your church family today? And that could range from disappointment, frustration, enthusiasm, excitement. Uh, the kids yelled at you on the way out of the car. You yelled at your parents yelled at you. What, you know, what, what did you bring today? Let's hear from a few of you. One word. Anxiety. Anxiety. Wow. Okay. Anticipation. Excellent. Exasperation. Exasperation. You know, I bring that one almost every morning these days. Yeah, absolutely. Hope. Hope, yeah. Joy. Joy. Gratitude. Gratitude. Excellent. Did somebody say peace? Yeah. Well, thank you guys. You know, that's sometimes it's, there's a range of, of, of what we are as a community. I'll tell you what I bring today. I bring optimism. Um, I have been a pastor for 33 years. Uh, we're going to talk about some things today that in my 20s as a young pastor, I would just probably never imagined that I was going to be talking with a community of people that was already committed to the ideas that we're talking about. I always imagined I would get in trouble for saying some of the things that we're going to say today. So I'm optimistic that your community has been excited about the idea of of not just thinking about change, but being deeply implicated in change. And listening to the music that you did this morning and kind of the praise uh, this, uh, session, you sang songs that invoked those type of actions, uh, invoked uh, rising up and all of the things that I think the people of God can do. So anyway, this is just exciting for me to talk to you guys. Let me give you just a little bit about me just so you'll know where I'm coming from. You, that was a good introduction. My roots are, I'm a red dirt Southern Baptist fundamentalist. I grew up in the country farming family. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm 56 years old, so that locates me right in the middle of Charlotte's desegregation battles in the, in the early 70s. So that means a lot to me in terms of as a, a junior hire, I was slated for a different school every year. And one of the things that marked me early long before I got involved in, in training for ministry and ministry is I knew early on that the church could be desperately wrong about social issues while invoking the name of Jesus because we were a white, rural, blue-collar enclave at the corner of Mecklenburg County and there was no debate in my church or my community, I won't tell the stories, about desegregation or what would have been the right thing to do in the name of God. That marked me. 
Um, Ministry-wise, um, I've I have mastered downward mobility. <laughs> I started uh, as a, uh, a youth pastor in a very large regional church. Uh, people came from six states to go to that church in New England way back in the day. Uh, pastored a medium-sized kind of academic church in Chapel Hill for a good while, and now I'm in a small kind of activist-style uh, community, over-educated church that I started about 13 years ago in, in downtown Durham. So I have mastered downward mobility. Um, as Lauren mentioned, I've spent a lot of the last 12 to 13 years in organizing, and that has been one of the most exciting experiences of my life as being a pastoral organizer, and this has been with, with Durham Can, we'll talk a good bit about that. And then as a researcher, um, one thing of interest to me is in a whole different world of organizing, I've done a five-year study of the moral movement in North Carolina. Some of you guys are aware of the NAACP-led moral movement, Reverend Barber and all of those. So I've been a part of that movement for five years as a researcher, a sign holder, a speaker every now and then, uh, all of those things, right? And so I've been a part of that movement. And one of the things that I'm studying is one of the things we're going to talk about today is how do people of faith, and particularly in the South, how do people who are Christians become involved in social justice activism? So that's kind of the story of, of my research. So this is all in the, the, the middle of my, my wheelhouse. Um, so let's pause and let's, besides me, let's talk about the moment we're in. Let's do a, another set of rounds. Uh, when you look at the world that we live in right now, what are your one word descriptors? of, of the, the social context. And you could be talking about your home, you can be talking about Cary, you can be talking about North Carolina, you can talk about our nation or our world, and I'll give you whatever lens you want. But what do you see as the kind of the state of society that we live in now? Chaotic. Chaotic, yeah. Divisive. Did you say di divide? Divisive. Divisive, absolutely. Tribal. Tribal, yeah, those are great words. Disaster, okay? <laughs> I'd like to know what, what uh, because I uh, see my guess and your guess is the same. We'll do that later, right? Yeah. Angry. Angry, yeah. There is, um, we live in very much an angry context. Disappointment. Disappointment, yeah. Fear. Fear? Yeah. I'm sorry, I missed you. Yeah. And I know you guys as a congregation have endured a powerful insult in terms of losing a congregate. Uh, I mean, this is the world that we're talking about is not an abstraction to you. And obviously, um, in a divided world, uh, politically, socially, class, all of those things that, that I do in school and you guys talk about seeing the media and all those things, you know, there's never like a perfect view. In fact, the type of organizing that we're going to talk about today as it relates to the faith community is nonpartisan in many ways because I don't, I, I have some loyalties, uh, but I don't see anything that fully represents the kingdom of God in, in the world that we live in socially. I see traces of it in lots of things, right? But nothing fully recognizes that. So we live in a crazy society. This is a couple things that, that I, I would say we're thinking about. We live in a world that's so politicized that there's really two narratives about what's going on, right? I, I mean, just for the sake of kind of bathing in that, when the Nunes memo came out, I watched Fox News for 10 minutes, and then MSNBC for 10 minutes, and then Fox News for 10 minutes, and MSNBC, and I was like, wow, I mean, 
other than the word memo. <laughs> there wasn't much overlap, right? I mean, it's entirely, entirely different circumstances. So we live in a world that has been so politicized that there's not even a common narrative that we're holding on to. That's part of it. Um, we also live in a culture where race has been weaponized in a way that is a tool. It's a, you know, we're, we're coming out of a season, right, where the, the, the world of racism was an unnamed, invisible racism. That was the shift that happened in the South after the Voting Rights Act, is that race became something that was invisible, something that we had gone beyond. And to raise it was incredibly impolite, right? And I mean, uh, you could see that in the media, and I'm talking about conservative media, liberal otherwise. Oh, you're playing the race card. You're mentioning something that is unpardonable. Of course, now today, we live in a world where racial conversation is inescapable in the arrangement of the world that we live in. I know for us in Durham, the racial narrative is absolutely central. We have roads defined by the racial narrative, neighborhoods defined by the racial narrative. My friends who are organizing in a church that I think you guys are familiar with, Duke Memorial Church, they, a beautiful, beautiful Methodist church that has done an incredible job of organizing, but they come to church like you did every Sunday morning realizing that there's a really big highway that goes around them and through a black community. I mean, they know that. They were in a social position where you couldn't put a highway through them, but you could put it through America's oldest black middle class, right? So we live in a world where race has been weaponized and we can see it all the time. We also live in a world of unbelievable inequities. I'll just quote a few things. This is from uh, Dr. Gene Nichols from UNC's law school. He's been kind of the researcher in chief of the moral movement. You've heard this before, but let's remember it. This is three-year-old statistics, but let me read those to you. 18% of North Carolinians live in poverty. 26% of our kids, oh, by the way, poverty is defined by an income of $22,000 for a family of four. So when we're talking about 18 or 19 percent, we're not talking about the people who earn $24,000 for a family of four. But 19 percent, 20 percent, 26 percent of our kids, 41 percent of children of color, um, we have considerably higher levels of child poverty than wealthy nations around the world. And North Carolina is a wealthy state. Uh, and we, we, there are resources here. I mean, in this area, the triangle, uh, 2009 landed differently than the way it did in other parts of the country. So we have massive poverty. We have one of the fastest rising poverty rates in the nation. A decade ago, North Carolina was 26th in the nation in poverty, a little better than average. This year, we're 11th and speeding past the competition. We have the ninth highest child poverty rate now in the nation. Greensboro, the federal government tells us, is the second hungriest city in America. Asheville is the ninth hungriest. We reportedly have the second highest child in food insecurity rate in the country. Research from Harvard tells us my hometown, Charlotte, has the worst income mobility in the United States. If you're born poor in Charlotte, you're more apt to stay that way more than anywhere else in the country. And the Census Bureau reports that North Carolina has seen the nation's steepest rise in concentrated urban poverty in the last decade. So just in our context, we live in two really different worlds. 
right? There is an accumulating poverty, an accumulating uh, racially defined deprivation in our society, as well as significant growing wealth. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to do is to be urgent about that, right? I mean, to hear those things, I'll give you an example of urgency. Um, last, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, after the, the freeze, you know, it, it had been cold for about two weeks, really, really, really cold. And my wife is an adventurer. When she had kids Lauren's age, I would be at church and I would get photos of her, like, going across a log over the Eno River with our three-year-old. I mean, there, there's like no bounds to her. She has no fear of anything, right? And so she was out on, we have a stream and wetlands behind her house, and she was on the stream ice skating. Somewhere she found the old ice skates from New England from 20 years ago, and she was out ice skating and sending me Facebook posts of her skating down the, the, the stream with our beloved, beloved rescue dog, Thelma. <laughs> who is a, 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 about a 70-pound, half-Great Dane. Uh, so it's got the height of a Great Dane, but, uh, but Thelma lives to love. If she is not touching you at all times, she's imagining, how can I hug you? How can I absorb any emotion that you have and turn it for good? Thelma is one of the purest things on this earth, right? So she's playing on the ice with my wife. A couple of days later, as the, as, the, as the ice is beginning to melt, we're walking in the same path in the woods, and we're walking and we're talking. We let Thelma kind of roam around us, and she checks in for treats and chases things and comes back. And we turn over and we look, and all of a sudden she's walking in the middle of the stream on the ice um, where she had been playing with my wife skating a few weeks earlier. But I could see that the ice is, is broken through in a couple places. And just as those words are about to come out of my mouth, Mimi, she's going to fall through. Boom! Literally, a hole opens up about eight feet by eight feet, and Thelma drops in the stream. And you know, it's that if you love animals, that feeling of watching an animal that you love, you know, paddling crazily, starting to bleed as she's trying to get out of the ice, yelping. And so, what did I do? What would you do? Yeah, there's no choice, right? You jump in, right? I mean, it's so I jumped in the stream, boom, broke the ice, and then did these kind of lame karate chop, boom, 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 and I made a path to Thelma. When I got to her, I had no idea how deep the stream was. I took one more step, and I went under. It was about eight feet deep, and so I'm kind of coming up, but when I came up, my hand hit her, her collar, and I, there was that feeling of incredible relief. And I pulled her across me and I realized, oh, we've got a little path that she can swim through to the side. And so we went and got Thelma, right? But some of the statistics that we're talking about, no one is jumping in the ice and making a path, right? We, we say Greensboro is the second hungriest city in the nation. Who's jumping in the water in Greensboro? Now, what we're going to talk a lot about today is how to jump in the water with a vision for whoever said hope and optimism and all those things, things that work dramatically, a way to literally change the social structure around us. So that's part of the world we live in. Here are two quick other things that uh, this is less fun, is we live in a world of largely an impotent church. Now, this is my experience in 55 years of living, uh, 33 years of pastoring, is that largely churches which are positioned everywhere. If you wanted to start an armed insurrection, 
maybe one of the best places to start would be churches. I mean, there are more churches than police stations, media outlets. We are everywhere, literally. I mean, you drive in the country, there are churches. You drive in neighborhoods, there are churches. We're everywhere, right? But largely, and I'm not talking about you specifically, but writ large, Christianity in America has had little or no impact on substantive social change related to poverty. I had an opportunity to study at Duke with, I don't know if you've ever worked with Mark Javes in sociology. No. Yeah, yeah. His big research, uh, which came out uh, back when faith-based initiatives was really going to be a big part of the, the change in terms of the social net, and he testified to Congress, Congress over many, many years that Christianity is fantastic, and this is wonderful. If there's a hurricane, a, if there is an earthquake, if there's an immediate need, we organize, we organize generously, you, you guys give money, you take stuff, all of those things. But in terms of changing things like social class and poverty in our society, his report was it has never been done by people of faith in America. So we have been largely impotent. Here's one, and this is kind of, you guys, I bet you guys have talked a little bit about this, but um, this is in, in organizing, we talk a little bit about kind of the triad of society. Have y'all heard this before? Kind of the three major power groups are the corporate world, the government world, and the civic world. Corporate, government, civic. You hold that picture in your head, right? So who, who, are, the, who are the corporate powers in Cary, Triangle, Raleigh? Who, who, are, who are our biggest corporate powers? SAS, absolutely, sure. Duke Health for us, uh, Duke University, Glaxo, uh, places people in my church all work, right? You guys probably work at those places, right? Any others that are like huge? IBM. Yeah, I mean, we've got, we've got strong corporate entities here, right? And then government is in some ways self-explanatory. And you guys are in kind of, in Wake County, you're in our governing county, right? What's the civic? Who, is, who lives in the civic space? What are, what are civic organizations? JCs? Yeah, yeah. Any kind of rotaries, JCs, people like that. Who else? Chamber. Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. Churches, nonprofits. Churches, nonprofits, magazines, uh, anything that produces ideas and gathers people, right? Now, if we were playing a game and we gave you kind of three, well, as maybe if I gave you crayons and I said, draw those three things, corporate, civic, government, how would you draw the relationship of those three entities in our society? What would it look like? Yes, if you were drawing lines, that there would be a, just a thick, 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 thick line. Which of, uh, just out of curiosity, of the three, if you drew one of the three largest, which would you draw? Yeah, I, I think it's very safe to say the corporate world, for good and for ill, is the most powerful entity, right? Part of our cultural idiom is you can't get things done until the corporate world does it, right? So it's a dominant force. How would you describe the relationship? I think you're right. Government and the corporate world talk to each other all the time. How would you describe their relationship? Bought and paid for. Bought and paid for, okay. Symbiotic. Symbiotic, yeah, yeah. I mean, we do live, and this is, this is done by Democrats in Maryland, uh, Republicans in North Carolina, 
Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, we, we are largely picking our voters, right? If you want to be elected, you just find your voters and get elected, right? And so that in many ways is a, a smooth transition between corporate leaders who are promised voters who then develop this system. That's not all bad, but how about the civic? How, would you, how, how big would you draw the civic world? <laughs> not very large, right? What is our relationship to both of those entities? Somebody said fabulous? Beggars, yeah. Yeah, we are like, this, I mean, this is, this is why we're impotent in many ways. We're just throwing little pebbles, right? Just tossing little pebbles at the governmental world and at the corporate world. And occasionally, you know, you might get a $10,000 grant. Woohoo! <laughs> Go make that happen, right? You know, I mean, it's not, not present, but this is the thing. Do you think that you talk about things, and I think you do because I've been reading Lauren's sermons. Do you think that you talk about things that matter in this community? Like, what's some of the stuff you talk about? Not just last two weeks of sermons, but what are the things that come up in your life in, in, in Greenwood Forest? Topics. You talk about hungry people. That sounds important. That sounds Thelma-like to me. Yeah. You talk about inequalities. Homeless families. Homeless families. Words like redemption might pop up. Um, justice. Change. I mean... You're having a really important conversation here, right? It might be useful to interrupt that conversation going on between government and the business world, who neither are poised to be forces of evil, right? They just don't generate those conversations, right? They're not sitting a whole round talking about social inequality, other than maybe it fits a bottom line or an electric, right? But you talk about those things all the time. That's part of your, your idiom. So that's what all this organizing stuff is about, is to help people in the civic sector, not just churches, but this is certainly faith-based, interrupt a conversation of power going on to interject our vision about how society can be. Do we have a vision of how society can be? Where does it come from? Yeah, we have this crazy gospel stuff, right? <laughs> Half of my politic changed, my gender politic, all of those things, just literally as a 21-year-old seminarian, reading the gospels for the first time and thinking, oh my goodness, I have this wrong, right? We have this seditious, seditious document, biblical text. We have a history of, uh, of a movement we have things that are really, really useful. And so what we're talking about in this, all of this organizing stuff is interrupting a conversation and interrupting it with power. We good so far? Yeah. So here's, here's the mission. And this is largely why uh, Dan and I wrote Organizing Church, is we thought of two things needing to happen at the same time. One is that we looked at lovely people like yourself who are filled with thoughts, capabilities, willingness to spend your time, uh, willingness to get up at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. That itself is not a lot of people will, will do that. And we thought, wow, this is the group of people
that you would want to enlist in substantive social change. If these are the people who are interested in the kingdom of God and making it real. So let's help those people do that work, whatever we can do. Number two is that we looked at a lot of churches that are, are dying, right? I mean, the, the church in America is largely secularizing. Some for good reasons, some for less, right? Um, the reason the evangelical church, why do you think the evangelical church is so large compared to other churches in America? What do they do better than anybody else? Make feel good, that's for sure. <laughs> feel good is good, right? We're all incredibly poor, incredibly poor, F minus poor at evangelizing our kids. But they do it three times better than everybody else, right? They're F minus, I guess an F is a 50, and everybody else makes a 10. I was an evangelical youth pastor for you know, 10 or 12 years, and we were good at failing in that. So to some degree, you, you see in our culture that we're living in, um, a lot of church growth is not really churches growing, it's a few churches growing massively, a lot of churches getting smaller, and the next generation looking at the church and saying, I have some serious moral concerns about what you're about, right? I'm thinking that writ large. So we live in a world that is secularizing, and what Dan and I wanted to do was to say, what, wouldn't this kingdom mission stuff change the inner life of churches? And honestly, one of the things that we heard, and I'll be curious whether you guys experienced this in, in the triangle, is a lot of teaching and organizing settings that was beautiful about social change, but thin in theology. So there was a disconnect between the kind of change that we were all imagining and a rationale. And when I look at people like yourself, I see people with a rationale, right? I, I don't want you to just do it. I want you to talk about why you're doing it. Because I think the why is overwhelmingly significant. So that's the kind of twofold idea that we had is that we think that this conversation enlivens church communities while also changing the structure of the world around us. So it's in and it's out. Does that make sense? So this is, so let's, I think we, you can redirect me at any point. Let me watch my, yeah, you can redirect me at any point today, but I wanted to launch a little bit on talking about the in. And what I mean by that is helping you as a community develop and organizing social changing, radical gospel way of living on the inside so that the things that we're talking about socially, interrupting that conversation, is natural to you. It's you doing what you already do as you look at your friends around the room. So that's where I wanted to start today. And let's, Lauren got us going uh, preaching the last couple weeks, but this is the first step that I think is absolutely critical. And it's one that, that hangs up a lot of churches on this is embracing the reality and the necessity of power and understanding that the church is a politic, right? Anytime you have human beings together, there is push, there's pull, there's gathered groups, there's ideas. It's always a politic, right? But we've been raised in 50 years plus of the assumption that the church and politic define largely are different entities, right? And that politic is impolite, and power 
is what the worst human beings on earth ascribe to, right? So we've had this aversion about power and about politics. But tell me this, what is power without a relationship? Somebody who has power but no friends, no community, no people, no one has a claim on them. What kind of person is that person? Disconnected. Cool. They're disconnected. They're cold. They're cold. They're an authoritarian, right? If I have power over you, literally, if I had the power that whatever I said went for you, and I could care less, that's the most frightening thing around, right? Let's turn it into the church world. What is relationship without power? Yeah, it's sentimental, right? It's, oh, you know, we really would love to help those hungry kids in Greensboro. I mean, gosh, I love kids. I hate, I mean, I, gosh, I, I went to Bojangles three times yesterday. I hate hunger. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and we get together and you guys prepare some incredible meals. We are opposed to hunger. And gosh, my, my son got hungry. My son gets hungry every 90 minutes. I feed him, right? And I wish those kids in Greensboro would have a little more to eat, right? Maybe some more Bojangles would help, right? You know, that's sentimentality. And so one of the things that the church is doing, not just you, but all of us, is we are saying sentimentality is where we're losing, right? That's why we're not in the conversation, is we've been willing to accept sentimentality as our goal rather than power. And so, hey, think about this. What Mark's gospel is about, right, that you've been reading, is about power. It is about the power of Jesus changing the game in society and word. It is an entirely different entity. So step one is literally generating what we talk about, and you're going to talk about this a lot, is organizing people and organizing money for, because those are the ways that power is generated. I wish money didn't generate power, but exchange is the currency, pun intended, of our society. So what is leadership? If you are aspiring as a faith community to lead, what does leadership really mean? What makes somebody a leader? Exactly. Right. I cannot claim to be your leader. No one here is following me. Lauren can. I presume she comes up with ideas and you guys get excited about them. Not always, but probably time to time, right? That's what leadership is. It's, it's, it's having people follow. And we talk about this. What is power? What does power do generically? It provokes a reaction, right? When you invoke power, people respond to it, right? They might push back. They might receive it. They might negotiate it. But power engages something. And so that's what we're in the business of doing is rooted in the gospel, provoking reactions in our society through the invoking of power. Now, why do people of faith get to that point and say, ah, we're out? What do they not like about what I just said about power, reaction, all of those things? There is conflict behind that. Yes, absolutely. It's risky. We somehow, this is part of our sentimentality gospel, 
we think that tension is bad, right? We had some, I'll tell you a quick story, we had some amazing teenagers in Durham that organized against the school board and what they looked at was they were all from pretty privileged high schools and they had people falling on top of people, counseling them and helping them get into college. But they looked at three of our lowest performing schools and most of the counseling resources had been put in other things and there was no one talking to kids in Hillside and in Southern and in Northern High School about what does it take to get into college. And so they organized against the school board to get money for college counselors in those schools. Now Durham, given state politic, was facing a $15 million school budget deficit. So what is the answer when they're asking for a million dollars? When there's a $15 million budget deficit? No. What did they accept? Not that. And so we went into a meeting, it's a group of pastors, the kids led the meeting, all high schoolers, we sat on the outside, and the only thing we said to them is, the school board chair, who's a lovely person, a neighbor of mine, like her a lot, we said, the really nice white lady is gonna sit across from you, and she's gonna tell you that she loves you, and she does. She's gonna tell you that she's really sad that she doesn't have a million dollars. She might even cry, and she did. She's gonna say how amazing it is to have teenagers like you that have the courage to come to the school board and sit in a big room and talk to three school board members. She did all of those things. And what did we tell her? It's okay if the nice white lady cries. It's okay if she says she doesn't have any money. None of those things change what you are presenting to her, right? You're describing an injustice. Now, I won't get into this, but we've done a power analysis so we knew where there was some leverage. And the short of the story is, guess what? Durham found a million dollars outside of their budget related to Durham Tech because the next thing we were gonna do is we were gonna have the county commissioners that control the education budget and the school board standing in front of an accountability assembly and we were gonna ask them, do you like the alignment of counselors? The kids were gonna ask them. And are you for spending more money in counseling? And they were going to have to say in front of the community that elects them, no, 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 no. And politicians do not like saying no, right? That was tense. It was uncomfortable. Heidi, who is a very good school board chair, my goodness, a few weeks later, I drove her in my car to a meeting where there was satellite parking. You know, but in that moment, I wasn't Heidi's friend. I was there supporting some fantastic teenagers who were organizing for something that makes our community better. So this really is step one, is embracing power and understanding that it's not always comfortable. In the research that I do, you wanna know what, the, what is the number one mark? This is a, an observed qualitative research thing of whiteness in our culture. What attribute do you think of most when you think of white? Inactiveness. Yeah. Inactivity. Yeah, inactivity, passivity. Nice. One of the most clear demarcations of whiteness in our society is niceness. Because as people of privilege writ large, we, we continue to gain when we continue to collect on the capital that we have. And so being nice is often the kind of sentimentality that gets in the way of the work that we're doing. So that's step one. 
Everybody with me is the idea of embracing the notion of power. Let's do two more, and I'm looking at the clock. I'll do these quickly because I want you guys to react to this. Um, is in our writing on this, we looked at a text called uh, The Fullness of Christ. And you guys are probably familiar if you've read parts of the New Testament in terms of Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, places that talk about the gifts of the body, right? Some are pastors, some are teachers. This is the Ephesians version. Let me read this to you. Um, the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, and here's the key phrase, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. What many theologians writing about the fullness of Christ has said is this idea that everyone, it's a Baptist idea, by the way, everyone in the church brings gifts, right? Everyone has something that, that is deeply valuable and would be missed. If we said this side of the room is heretical and needs to leave, your church would be impaired by that. The losses would be significant. It would be hard to recover from. Or if we said the other side of the room, that would be the case. The fullness of Christ involves a radical revisioning of what it means to be present to each other. In organizing, what we do is a whole practice of things called listening sessions and house meetings. We're getting ready to launch a major jobs campaign, one that I know that we're going to win, and i tell you what we're going to win. We're going to win at least 1,000 living wage jobs for returning citizens from Duke Health. We're going to get there. But to do that, we're not going to run around and say, hey, we need some living wage jobs. We do, right? But we're going to listen to thousands of Durham. We're going to arrange ourselves, and we're going to have people in our homes. We're going to go to their meetings. We're going to start with this practice that it's not just your stories that matter. They matter, but those stories matter as well. So we're going to listen. That idea of the fullness of Christ, this has changed our church. We're a little, small, tiny church, but we do this practice every two years or less where we have listening sessions. We cancel everything in church, small groups, and art stuff and all the things that we do, and we just gather and listen to each other. Most of the mission of our church comes from those listening sessions. Um, so that's part of the fullness of Christ. That is a practice that's an ancient practice, the open meeting that we're trying to reclaim. And if it's reclaimed in church communities, we think it will transform you. Because if you are practicing open meeting however you would do it, in your space, it's going to be natural for you to want to do that in every other social setting of your life. So if you're following along, we've talked about power, we've talked about open meeting, let's talk about one more. This is what we call the rule of Christ. This is in Matthew 18. Uh, I'll read that text. Do you remember this? This is the one where it says, if, an, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that person. Now, I told you I grew up fundamentalist Baptist, right? This was our favorite passage, right? <laughs> because this is the one that says, if you bug me, I can go tell you how you bugged me and claim Jesus in my buggy, right? <laughs> there have been very great abuses to this text. It goes on. If the member refuses to listen, listen to them and tell it to the whole church. 
I remember an infamous church meeting where a 12-year-old stood up and said, I don't think the youth pastor is very good. I think we should fire him. <laughs> right? That's, that's how we practice this. Like, I told him he wasn't good. He didn't agree. And so I went and found somebody. You know. But this movement to whole assembly. And then here's some really weird words. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, that passage does two things in our organizing world. One is it talks about the significance of relationship, the one-on-one -on -one relational meeting. I'm not going to go and I, what would be useful, and you guys I'm sure will do this, would be to do a, a one-hour, 90-minute training on relational meetings because it's a different type of meeting than what happens in most church settings. Uh, the other meetings are great, counseling, pastoral care, discipleship, Prayer, all those things are great. This is a different type of meeting that invokes listening to move people into action, right? But this text has been significant, and I could tell you story after story after story of pastors who have had a relational meeting culture in their community that has transformed the way they relate to others. In our church, we do this a lot. We do relational meetings sometimes in our worship gathering. Like we'll have the, uh, the peace, and sometimes we'll extend the peace for 20 minutes. and say, go have a relational meeting with somebody that you don't know in, in the context. Uh, we have seasons where we send people and say, let's just do nothing but have relational meetings and the, and the, and the things that we have to do to kind of continue on. But that's part of this text. There's another part of this text, though, that I think is really really critical. Somebody over here said it, I appreciate them saying this, is that you can't do, you can't unleash the politic of the church without unleashing conflict, right? Uh, tension, contentions, and conflict is where it gets beautiful, right? Can you imagine a marriage or a partnership where there was no conflict? Would you imagine that to be an intimate partnership? I don't think, that, I mean, intimacy is on the other side of conflict, right? It's when you're able to engage conflict creatively that, and generatively that you develop an intimate relationship with friends, family, partners, all of those things. And so the rule of Christ is giving us a way of dealing with our conflict. One of the theologians that I love, uh, Jim McClendon, uh, wrote about this. He calls it the politics of forgiveness. And I would suggest that if you did any one practice that prepares you for being an organizing community, it would be to submit yourself to a politics of forgiveness. The idea that your relationships never end, there's never a perfect outcome, but you're always meeting with the purpose of landing in a greater state of reconciliation with the people around you, right? Our political world would change dramatically if, if, if we were living under a politics of forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, in our, the, the, the words binding and loosing, here are, here are some definitions that we use that I think might be helpful. Binding is when a community says, I'm going to hold you to an obligation. We've met, and part of our meeting results in an obligation. Let's say that you notice that Lauren is working too hard. She's got two small kids, and you feel like... It, the deacon board, people around here say, you know what? When we hear what she does, we feel like it sounds like six and a half days a week. And I, my last email I got from her was at 1.30 at night. You might 
have a relational meeting with her and bind her to rest. That would be an, a, an important obligation probably to give to any of your leaders. What is loosing? Loosing is absolving people of obligations. In our community, one of the things that we've really gotten on this is we use the language of binding and loosing a lot. I think I wrote about this in the book, um, uh, but we, like for example, uh, last year, a young woman got up to speak and she, had, was, she just asked to insert her story in our worship gathering. And um, she was struggling with infertility. And it was clear she had really, she had waited a long time to, have, uh, to get married. She was uh, wanting to have kids and she was not having a child and it was really, really painful for her. But she wanted to tell us about that because she wanted to, she knew that would create tension, right? Mother's Day is hard. It's always hard in church, right? Because many of us have lost mothers, a young age for me. Uh, uh, people may have aspired to be a mother and never, you know, it's hard. It creates tension. But what she did is says, I want to do this in a binding, loosing way. And I'm going to bind you people, my 50, 60 friends gathered in this room, to invite me to your kids' birthday parties, invite me to celebrate when you're pregnant, invite me to be a part of the lives of your kids. And I'm going to loose you from feeling sorry for me. I'm going to bind you to asking, how's it going? What's it like to spend $30,000 on in vitro and it not work? Uh, in other words, things that seem like forbidden conversations, I am binding you to have those with me. I'm loosing you from guilt, and I'm binding us to relationship. It's that type of spiritual practice that Dan and I believe decisively changes communities that makes the work of organizing, whether it's going to the school board to get a million dollars, or the city council to get affordable housing, to do health, to get jobs. It's those practices that train us and prepare us. And guess what? None of those are invented practices. Those are all historic biblical practices. So that's, if we have any advocacy, those are the things that we have, is find space in your community for open meeting. Speak openly, like you did in the last two sermons, on power. Uh, find a way to commit yourself to a forgiveness that, by the way, will be the most radical thing in our society right now. And now to finish with a quote from Astra Taylor. The goal of any would-be world changer should be to be a part of something so organized, so formidable, and so shrewd that the powerful don't scoff, they quake. Special thanks to Tim Conder. This has been Greenwood Forest. See you next time.